0: Here we go.
1: Neutron proton mass effect. Lyrical
2: oxidation. Your irrelevant mass spectrograph. Your electron volt. Atomic energy erupting as I get all open on beta gamma rays. Thermal cracking. Cyclotron. Any e and every mic you you're on. Transguradium. If you always your molecule Molecules. Spontaneous combustion. jump Law of death. proportion. Gain. Ink anyway, weight. I'm every element around.
3: This is Regina Barbara DeGraff from Spark Science. This is our Why Am I a Scientist episode. I am on location, I guess is a good way to say it. I am in Washington, D.C., and I am at the National Sackness Convention, and Sackness is a national organization that promotes diversity in science, so it's a really welcoming environment, but it still is a science convention, so there's poster sessions, all that kind of stuff. There's tons of people here being very proud to be scientists and proud to be An overall well-rounded human being and celebrate those differences. What I'm going to do is I'm going to interview people and ask them why did they want to become a scientist and hopefully we'll get some good stories out of this. (music) the SACNIS National Convention with Dr. Dion Rossiter and she's amazing and we were both in the SACNIS Leadership Institute together in 2014 and I'm gonna ask her this question very broad crust question but I want her to tell me lots of stories tell tell me about herself why are you a scientist I am a scientist
4: because I'm good at math and math wasn't good enough I was always good at math, junior high, elementary school, of course, high school, and I really didn't make the connection that science was applied math until physics, and I took physics class, um, you know, junior year of high school, and I fell in love with the applications of math, and that was really when science became exciting for me. I don't think... I ever realized I never really understood what science was until that point. And then, you know, my world just changed instantly. The way I looked at things, the way I asked questions, the way I went a- around answering those questions. And then from there, you go to college and you have subjects that you m- can major in, and to me, they were the basics, English, English, math, science, spanish and so i chose physics just because it was this thing that i'd fall in love with in love with uh, during high school i quickly became a little bit tired of physics because i was in a program that was very theoretical and i was somebody who liked really clear concrete answers Um, so i started doing atmospheric science at the national center for atmospheric research under a program that they have called soars significant opportunities in atmospheric research and science which is a program for minority students underrepresented minorities in uh, any kind of science but you work at ncar work with the atmospheric scientists I really fell in love with atmospheric science because it was another way to apply math and physics to real-world problems and answering questions that had a real meaning in terms of you know the environmental movement and and climate change and pollution and the ozone layer and so instead of solving theoretical equations, we were solving all of these equations that had real life applications um, and, and really for the betterment of people across the world. And that was very exciting for me. So I'm an atmospheric scientist Kind of that's my journey through science, and that's why I landed in atmospheric science. Um, going to grad school was really just me trying to find a, a great program where I could do atmospheric science. And my program had travel; I was a field scientist. It had computer science; I was analyzing data. It had a little bit of electrical engineering because I had a uh, instrument that went on airplanes. So I was doing all of this really cool stuff as an atmospheric scientist, and that's how I landed in cloud physics. Uh, So my PhD is in specifically cloud microphysics, um, the small physics inside of clouds. There's still a lot of unanswered questions in these atmospheric science, specifically these cloud microphysical questions, are questions that are necessary, imperative to really understand global climate. Clouds are the largest source of uncertainty when you're looking at climate models, climate projections, um, so we really need to get the cloud physics right before we get climate predictions anywhere near really narrowing
3: down on their uncertainty. What helped you become a atmospheric scientist and get you that PhD, like what was the support that you had? So
4: the support I had to become a scientist and to finish graduate school and really to be a successful scientist came... Primarily from all of the mentors that I had met throughout my life, mentorship played such a huge role in my success family as well but it 's hard to have it 's hard when your family doesn 't know what it 's like to be a scientist or, or to be a, I know they 're not academics they're not scientists um, well my dad is an, is an engineer he is a scientist, but it 's a little uh, different in the academic way or you know I'm, he my dad is a white man and I am a brown woman um, so there's challenges that I was faced with that he definitely never met um, so there was that and then there was the getting the PhD thing which nobody in my family knew anything about and I really had surrounded myself with people that loved me and that wanted to see me succeed and that would do bend over backwards and do anything it took really to be my brace my you know they were there when I was having a hard time Um, they were my support staff I had a lot of people I could lean on and sometimes that's hard because if you're not doing what you're team your mentors think that you should be doing it can be a little bit you don't want to burn bridges i guess and you don't want to let people down so there's almost like a positive and in some ways a negative to having so many people support you because you want to make everyone happy but i think without them i would have never be you know really been successful one story there's actually two times in my life when i thought i was going to not one time I thought I wasn't going to finish my undergraduate degree I was a junior and I was so stressed out and I was having so many anxiety attacks that I ended up at one point dropping all of my classes and I thought that I was a college dropout and I thought I would never graduate even with an undergraduate degree I didn't think I was going to graduate and I was thinking to myself what can I do I'm going to be one of those people without a degree now here I am with a PhD so it's it's good to know that even people who can be successful have these doubts and have struggle with that um, of course I re-registered all my classes the next semester and I graduated but there was a moment in time when I didn't even know what the future held for me in terms of getting an undergraduate degree and then I struggled a lot between college and graduate school because I wasn't sure what I wanted to get a PhD in I was struggling with going to school in atmospheric, sorry, in atmospheric science uh, or in science education I talked to a lot of people and that they helped me through that and I decided to get my PhD in science because that was going to lead me it was really going to open doors I'll open a ton of doors um I was definitely going to be able to find a job doing education outreach promotion, advocacy, whatever I needed to do as a PhD scientist. And that is true. What I do now is I am a project director at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, also known as AAAS, we're the largest general science society, so instead of, you know, the American Physical Society or uh, the American Chemical Society, these are subject-specific societies, and we are a general scientific society, um, so we accept all disciplines, and including we work closely with policymakers, we work closely with artists and people in the media, journalists, really for the advancement of science for all of society. That's our missions, one of our mission statement, I guess, our overarching mission. We're a a nonprofit, so we have a lot of public programs that really again serve the scientific community the entire scientific enterprise but then also bring science to the people and then the other working in education or communication are these things really any way that science touches on people's lives the other thing we are is we're a publisher of science magazine which is the bait the best journal in the world so they say yes along with nature and so it's a high-profile publication So I love what I'm doing. I work on science communication, and I work on science outreach and engagement and diversity issues and women in science and minorities in science. And I work in the education directorate. I love it. I run a fellowship program that places scientists in news outlets to work as reporters. So we're really bringing science to the media outlets. Um, Not that there's not science. Well, in some media outlets, they have very small scientific beat either nobody's writing science or maybe somebody will write a little bit of health Then also we work for places that have lots of science writers like discover mag or national geographic and these are publications that primarily are made up of all scientists or science writers so it ranges the full gamut of having either zero scientific news articles or having a lot of scientific news or scientific uh, articles published one story i like to tell that's like one of my favorite stories about me struggling was i was a third year phd student and i really wasn't happy and i wasn't happy because i really couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel and i knew i wasn't going to be a bench scientist and i wasn't going to be a professor i wasn't going to be in academia because that's not what i wanted but when you're in that environment you can't really see outside of those walls because you're there to be an academic and there's really not a lot of opportunities to explore careers outside of that there's not a lot of encouragement to do so so i felt really alone and i felt really isolated and i wrote a five paragraph essay about why i was going to drop out of graduate school and i sent it to my advisor I, i wrote a career suicide note it, it was very hard to do, and I cried a lot, and I really was going through a hard time doing this and dealing with this and coming to this decision, and I sent it to my advisor. And I like to segue and say that before I went to grad school, I got my my scuba diving uh, certificate, so I got scuba diving certified. It's terrifying, and I was in day two or three or something and I was in the shallow part of the ocean where I was getting certified and I freaked out I was having panic attacks I was having a lot of anxiety and I I was scared I couldn't breathe I felt like I was suffocating and I I, uh, you know motioned to my uh, instructor that I wanted to come up and my instructor popped up and I popped up and, and he said, what's going on? And I said, listen, you can keep my money, but I'm freaking out. I, I'm really not comfortable with what I'm doing and, um, I'm gonna quit, you know, this certification program and, but again, you know, you can keep my money and it's cool. Uh, so have a good life basically. And, and he looked straight at me in the, straight in the eye and, and he said, you're 12 inches underwater. And he put his mask back on and he went down. And he had he there was no sympathy in his voice. There was no hug, you can do it. He looked me in the eye and said, You're you're being a joke. Like just get under there. You're fine. And I was really taken aback and shocked that he had no care that I showed any kind of concern for my well being. But I went back underwater. And I finished the certification and I am scuba diving certified. And when I sent that letter to my advisor, um, he called me into his office and he looked at me and he said, essentially, you're 12 inches underwater. Well, he basically said, no, you're fine. You're going to survive. You're great. You're smart. You're competent. You're worthy. And get back in there and I'm going to support you and you need to do what you need to do to be happy let's figure out what will keep you here and he asked me what do you want to do in life and that was the first time anyone really has stopped to say is this your path Uh, and I said you know essentially no I've I've never wanted to be an academic I want to go into Communication and policy and advocacy and and just being excited about science and getting other people excited about science And he said, okay, well then we need people like you And we appreciate people like you and get back in the lab and get your PhD and you know, basically suck it up I'm so grateful that he did that. I I look back and I think Where would I be? Well, I'm sure I'd be fine. I'm sure I'd be great, but I have a PhD and I owe it to those people who really really pushed me um, and really didn't let me not believe in myself Um, because I think that that's always the one thing standing in people's way especially women and minorities and just having doubts about where you should be or who you are and what you're capable of and and he knows that I owe I owe a lot to him you know those experiences I think A lot of times people gloss over, you know, they say, oh, Dr. Rossiter. Well, but what was all of those little pieces and all the people, you know, this wasn't my Ph.D. It's his Ph.D. It's all the mentors that came before him and after him. They all play an equal role.
3: Thank you. That was I think we're going to end there because that was beautiful. Alright, so I'm um, still at this wonderful Inclusion DC conference, which is amazing, and I've met a lot of people, and one of the people I've met, kind of again, because I met him before at the past SACNES conference, is Richard Galvez. So I'm going to ask you the same question I've been asking everyone else. Why did you become a scientist? And I'll let you um, introduce yourself, like what your job is, and then you can answer the question
5: so my name is richard galvez i'm a postdoc at vanderbilt university i wanted to become a scientist i guess ever since uh i was in high school i thought it was pretty interesting to basically just uh ponder about the mysteries of the universe really as cheesy as that sounds i basically investigated about as far as you can go i read a pretty interesting book a time traveler and i mean it's a fiction book but It definitely uh, piqued my interest into it, and uh, ever since then I've been studying, I don't know, relativity and quantum mechanics and all these things, and, and then cosmology eventually, what I did my PhD on, and now I'm continuing to study, essentially now, string inflation and neutrino physics, basically anything that could tell us about the early universe or dark matter or anything of that nature.
3: How old were you when you read Time Traveler?
5: I was I was like, fourteen years old. Yeah, so I've always known I wanted to be a theoretical physicist (laughs) ever since I was like fourteen. Wow. But I didn't actually know how to do that or how to get there. Actually, didn't even I I didn't know any theoretical physics. I mean, I had no idea what that meant. So you
3: knew you wanted to be it.
5: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How? I don't know. I just thought it was really interesting. So.
3: But like. (laughs) <laughs> who Who taught you what a theoretical physics was like where is the first time you heard that term
5: so after I read that book um my high school class, we went to a field trip to the library, like the public library and uh i i had not i didn't have too much interest to be there really um but i did so I went to one of the computers and just looked up kind of uh time travel in um in the yeah you know so anyway from there it took me basically to relativity to an area to a part of the library which was actually uh, a physics uh, part and at that point it was kind of like astonishing that it was actually um something that was taken seriously that it was an actual serious study and then i saw you know basically albert einstein all over it and uh, it was it was surprising to me it was like oh okay that's why it was famous because these equations are actually taken seriously and from there I learned about special relativity um, and I mean I, I was in high school then so I didn't really know what that meant but later I learned about general relativity quantum mechanics quantum field theory and stuff like that. I learned it a lot like through popular science books at the time okay. and then eventually in college and everything I learned more about you know the technicalities yeah.
3: so um, I'm gonna ask you the same question again that I asked the other scientists what kind of support did you get to get you to the point where you are now and then tell me what you actually are doing now or or have done in like grad school and um, undergrad well grad school and postdoc we can talk about that
5: all right um, so in the beginning I can't say I had too much uh, support I think uh, basically my family pushing me and saying go to school it's a good idea you know should get an education so I studied physics naturally I picked it as a major even at a community college when I started I went through with that. I actually got an AA in uh, physics. I transferred to a four-year school, Florida International University, where I did a bachelor's in physics. And at that point, I started to learn that going to grad school was actually a paid thing. So I actually, I was worried for a while, kind of how one could afford to uh, pay for a PhD if yeah. it took, you know, like six years or whatever. Right. So that was pretty cool. But um, I guess I started getting most of my support uh, for my friends and everything, when I got to the four-year school, yeah, I would say pretty much then. And then when I started, when I got into graduate school, when I went to the PhD program at Syracuse University, met a lot of people there that really kind of helped me out and supported me through everything. Yeah. But for the most part, I think from the beginning, it was kind of like a self-propelled thing. So I eventually ended up basically working in inflationary cosmology and writing that for my phd so the point is that in the very early universe so like around 10 to the minus 42 seconds immediately after the beginning as far as what we call the beginning um there was an exponential expansion of space really the universe went from essentially the size of an atom to about the size of an orange in basically an instant and then after that it continued to expand but at a much slower rate so that initial expansion is what's called it's an inflationary era of the universe um... and that's actually used to to, to be able to explain uh... large-scale structure of the universe that we see at the largest of scales you see like this web-like structure of dark matter distributed in the universe and ordinary matter follows it along through gravity um... so relativity um... in a sense uh, general relativity it's a theory of gravity and basically at these scales the cosmological scales that's the dominant the dominant source of dynamics yeah Yeah. the phenomena the what governs the dynamics really um so what's interesting about general relativity and and gravity at that level is that even during times you know 10 to the minus 42 seconds after the big bang general relativity was you know the the dominant theory and probably like you know well in a sense you had to have some quantum aspects to it, and these are things that we don't really understand yeah. right now, but um, at least at a classical level um, we understand general relativity pretty well, I mean it's one of the most exact theories that are known right now, mm-hmm. anyway. So, I think we study science mostly because we we want... we. I mean, I, 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 s- sometimes I go to bed at night and it just bothers me to think that we don't know what dark matter is. You know, we have ideas what it is, but okay yeah sure it makes me a nerd right whatever get out of here <laughs> but <laughs> but the point is that we're so close yeah it's you know 95% of the matter of the universe everything that we know I mean f- is basically 5% of the 5% of the matter in the universe so you me you know airplanes Uh, basically all the physics that you know anyone would learn in like a freshman level or like sophomore level class thermodynamics everything this is 4.8% of the universe so I don't know. I mean, that's enough to drive me up, like, to drive my curiosity. So really, it's just a, a curiosity that you just keep on following until, for, I don't know, as long as you can follow it, I guess. I, th-
3: I think until you die. <laughs> <Just like laughs> I guess until I you die. Th- I think that's because, what scientists are. They, you know, they yeah. ask
5: questions until they die. That's right. I mean, I'm, I'm most certainly going to die with questions in my mind. I actually come up with questions faster than I can answer them. You know, and that's like the vein of my existence yeah it's like (laughs) i couldn't possibly answer them fast enough yeah just don't have enough resources
3: but there's there's some sort of like joy in asking the question i mean i think as scientists we like asking questions and sometimes we're okay if like one out of 50 are actually answered
5: right I mean, when one is answered, that's like <laughs> euphoria, right? It's like, uh-huh, I know what, I know what dark matter isn't now. Right. It's like, uh uh-huh, okay, at least it's like another, a little bit of a right. piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And it takes a, a kind of, I think, I don't think it's a special kind of person. I think you're kind of trained to be that kind of person. All right, All right. that's good. Well, thank you for talking to me. with my SLI alum, Sackness Leadership Institute, uh, my friends that we spent a week together learning about, um, I don't know, what did we learn about? I don't know, at the SLI, leadership, there we go, there we go, that's one of the things. So I'm out here um, at breakfast in DC, and I'm here with fellow scientists. We're going to talk about why they wanted to be scientists, my name is
4: Christy Duran. I am from Adams State University, which is a small university in southern Colorado. I'm an associate professor there. I became a scientist, I think, mainly because I was exposed to undergraduate research uh, when I was at the University of New Mexico, and I had amazing mentors and realized that this was something that I could do, and it was uh, basically discovery every day. I, I just
6: I loved it, and I was, I was hooked.
7: Hi, I'm Diana Zerdia. I work at UCLA. I'm the Associate Director for the Graduate Programs in Biosciences. I am a trained biochemist. I became a scientist because I was really... I really love the process of discovery, uh, and I felt that science should be accessible to everybody and that it should not be locked away in elite journals, um, that people like my grandmother should have access to it. So I really want to make science available to everybody, and I think it's about equity. So.
1: Okay, my name is Ricardo Ramirez. <laughs> I'm an assistant professor at Utah State University in the biology department, and I'm an entomologist. And actually, um, I didn't know whether or not I wanted to get into to science. Initially, I was actually going to go into music. And so um, I played saxophone and alto, actually. And I played baritone sax in, uh, I think, like between freshman and junior year of high school. And so as I went into uh, the university, I was like, well, I went and played. And, and I did have a little scholarship, but it was sort of a decision in my life of determining, do I want to be a musician? Uh, or do I want to do something else? And I did like science but I didn't know if I wanted to get a job in science. But one thing I did like was animals and so I ended up um, joining the pre-vet program at New Mexico State University where I did my undergraduate and master's degree and um, while I was there the department head had asked me whether or not uh, I was interested in taking a integrated pest management course because there's a lot of insects and arthropods that attack animals, I mean fleas, ticks, and so um, that's actually where I ended up getting a start in entomology um, from taking this one course and really that that kind of drove me more into the sciences and, and to be interested in entomology.
7: Hello, my name is Esther Stein and I work at the National Academy of Sciences. I'm the Assistant Director of the Board on International Scientific Organizations. I didn't start like this. I started like a curious child I saw science from very early on as a way to understand my surroundings and I decided to be a botanist when I was about seven years old looking at the plants in the balcony of our house and being curious about them Um, we were talking a little bit about inspiration earlier on, before this was turned on, mm-hmm. and um, I would think that my parents are not scientists, but my brother is an MD, a medical doctor, and I think he, in a way, was my inspiration to go into science. And there are many ways to be, uh, of being a scientist. And you can be a scientist in the field. You can be a scientist in a lab, in a biocontainment lab, or looking through a microscope or a telescope. Or you can be a scientist like I am a scientist. Because what I do all day long is enable scientists here and abroad to collaborate to interact, to advance science globally. So I want to say though, um, I didn't know what
3: an entomologist was until my daughter watched Backyardigans, which is a preschool show. And um, there was an episode where Pablo was an entomologist. And this is, um, I just had my baby, you know, seven years ago. So you can imagine when I actually discovered what an entomologist was. So somebody who studies bugs. I'll do that for our listeners. I just want to take a quick poll. Um, who here, and so I'm, I'm sitting at a table with um, five other scientists. And who here has parents who were scientists? You did? My mother was a your mother was a chemistry teacher. So out of six scientists that we have here, only one of them had one parent who was a scientist. And I think that that's kind of important for our listeners to know that, like, as scientists don't just breed scientists or lawyers don't just breed lawyers. And I mean, yes, that happens a lot. But um, just because your parents were not a scientist doesn't mean you're like doomed for life. Which I kind of thought off and on for a long time in undergrad. <laughs> I am here with my good friend, Dr. Chichi Nakwe. I'm going to ask her the question I've been
6: asking everyone else, why are you a scientist? That's a question that many scientists ask themselves at some point in their career, and then they have to keep asking that question. So I guess you have to think of it in a couple of different ways. What is your background? But then also, what are you, what are your orientations, and how do you think, right? So my background is in molecular biology, and, and uh, I study cancer biology. I st- first hit the science bug somewhat in high school, but when I went to college, I really enjoyed my physiology classes because I learned how I work on the inside. And then I had the chance to do research over the summer with the McNair Scholars Program at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, and that's where I learned about being a scientist. You go in, you do experiments, you manage your own time. You get to do fun things. At that time, we were looking at um, the hippocampus and rats and trying to understand long-term memory and how it can be impacted by hypothyroidism.
3: And and real quick, what's yeah. the McNair scholarship before you yes. continue?
6: So the Ronald E. McNair um, post-baccalaureate program is a program sponsored by the Department of Education. It's founded after um, Ronald E. McNair, who was the astronaut who died in a, a space, space explosion, space shell explosion. And it's geared towards helping individuals from underrepresented populations learn about getting graduate degrees. So, um, ideally, PhD degrees. And it is um, ideally targeted for people from low income backgrounds, um, first generation backgrounds, and racial and ethnic minority groups. And so, Having Nigerian-American heritage, I'm an African-American student, and in college, because I did well my first year, they said, they targeted me and sent me this email, and they said, would you like to do this program? And I was like, okay, sure, why not? I get to stay uh, on campus for the summer, and then they gave me a stipend, so they gave me money, which was great, and then I got to do research, so I had to find a research project, and I had just taken physiology with um, my professor, Esmiel Misami. And so I asked him if I could work in his lab for the summer, and so I did. So I was looking at rats. We I learned how to what they call perfuse rats. So you had to fix fix the brains of the rats, but to do that, you had to inject them with formaldehyde. So we used the rat's body to do that by opening up their rib cage and then putting the, a needle of formaldehyde through their heart. So then the heart like it pumps blood around the body, it was pumping formaldehyde throughout the body. And so then after the the brains were fixed, I had to have this little mini guillotine and I had to separate the head from the body and then dissect the brains out and then fix them and uh, create slides so we could do staining for um, nerve growth factor. So it was, for me, that was my first um, authentic research experience and I loved seeing the inside of the rats. I loved you know, understanding um, how our organs worked. I loved being able to ask questions and answer them with experiments. I love the time flexibility that I had. I can come in, I can set things up after a while. And then I like talking about the work I did. So that one experience led me to, I want to say, three others every summer afterwards because I said, I'm going to be a scientist. To be a scientist, I have to do research in college so I can go to grad school. I'm going to go to grad school and get a PhD. So then after that, um, I went on to get a PhD from the University of Chicago, from the pathology department, and my area of focus is in DNA damage. So how do our cells sense when our DNA is damaged? And then How do they fix that damage and also communicate to the body or the rest of the cell that that damage is present? It's really important to communicate that there's damage present so that there's time to fix it before the cell divides. Because the worst thing you could do is divide with damaged DNA, which means there's mutations that you're carrying on to the next generation of cells. So for me I got to do that in two labs and I got my PhD with Steve Crone who's in the Department of Molecular Genetics and Cell Biology at University of Chicago. I really enjoyed it. I did all my work in yeast with his work and they smelled like donuts when they were ready to go in the morning. <laughs> Right, And then when, um, when they would grown too much, you started to smell a little alcohol. So they smelled like palm wine, which is something a lot of Nigerians are very familiar with. Wow. So it was kind of cool. But then um, you can do such amazing genetics work with yeast. Like you could just throw DNA at yeast and they'll just take it in and incorporate it into their genomes because they're, they're, the recombination rates are very high. So really all you have to do is have a cut piece of DNA, know how to transform or, or put the DNA into the Yeast, and then the different, depending on what techniques you use, the DNA will incorporate itself into the genome and express whatever gene you're trying to express. So I just, I loved it. I, I, I love doing that work. It was really great to be creative, but it was really hard, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, doing research is very hard, it's 90% failure in everything that you do. And going through the experience of graduate school, you learn how to mitigate that failure. It can be very frustrating at times, so you learn how to hustle and you learn how to keep at something. But I think that training is a big part of who I am today, and it's really important for anything I do. It doesn't really leave me. And so when I finished my PhD, I didn't go into a postdoc. I went into management consulting, and I worked for a company that helps solve business problems for um, and for other pharmaceutical or biotech companies, and I did that for a year. And we learned all about um, helping companies launch products onto the market maybe two years in advance because they have to go through clinical trials. After that, I felt that I wasn't really being called to do what I wanted to do, so I went into higher education and became the first um, director of graduate diversity initiatives for the University of Chicago. So now I was working in a centralized office, a provost office, and helping to coordinate um, strategies to recruit um, underrepresented minorities to the institution, to the graduate programs there, all the PhD granting programs. So I took my organizational leadership skills that I had learned in management consulting, and then I took all of the critical thinking and analysis um, skills that I learned in graduate school. And then I had my scientific background and the scientific method approach that I fell back on and I took that and built an office there and worked there for four years and really enjoyed building partnerships and connecting with people and doing a lot of outreach um, so that we made some really great um, initiatives. Um, and after that, I felt like, you know, I'm helping to recruit for science disciplines, biological sciences and physical sciences, but also social sciences and humanities, which is amazing. But I miss my science. I miss right. being around new technologies and the cutting edge and the collegiality of all of being around scientists and just shooting ideas together. And so I applied and um, am now a AAAS fellow. So. Uh, The AAAS abbreviation stands for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And I've become a science and technology policy fellow, where I'm embedded in an office within the federal government. And so I'm embedded at the National Science Foundation within the Computer and Information Science and Engineering Directorate. And the program that I'm working most intimately with is called i or Innovation Core, And it's a program that works to help scientists and engineers and social scientists and educators learn about how they can take their deep research um, knowledge and expertise and, and also develop uh, technology or innovation, how they take that innovation and commercialize it. In the marketplace, so it That's helps. Awesome. Yeah, it helps them learn about um, who is their customer, their market, and how do they customize whatever they're developing um, in a lab or in their research program to be able to start a business up from it. Wow. And so, it's putting me into it's putting me into this new area of entrepreneurship. And through my fellowship, I'm able to figure out how do I increase diversity within entrepreneurship. And I'm having an amazing time. I just started two months ago on September 1st, and I love it. I really do. So it's um, wonderful working within the government because there's a public service orientation. And that's something that's always been very strong. I've always given back in many capacities and now I'm able to serve in a public capacity and help people with, at a national um, level. So it's amazing. I also really think that when you work in the government, you start to understand that money does not just flow to be given to other agencies or institutions. This is tax, pay your money, right? Yeah. This is like your grandmother's taxes going into whatever you're doing, like your mom's money, your parents' money, your brothers or sisters' tax money coming to these federal agencies and the and the people that work in these federal agencies are stewards of that money. So it gives you um, some real accountability with how you use those funds and how you interact within the space of outside of government because you are serving the public, you're serving people. And so for me, I'm just having a ball. It's a wonderful fit with who I am as a person because I'm someone who always gives back, but I feel like it's something that makes me excited, right? I thrive on seeing other people excel and helping be part of that. So it's great. But being a scientist means... You know, you're someone who has a deep level of knowledge in a particular area. You think critically. You like to ask questions. You're curious. um, You like to organize something out of nothing. You know, you have to create um, some kind of process or manage large sets of information and know how to glean really important insights from it. And so I say that very vaguely because there's so many people who are scientists, they don't even know it. And often when I have worked with students, I've also told them they're already scientists. They just don't have the level of time or experience that more older senior people have. But if you're curious and you like to tinker, you like to create, if you're creative, all of those things make a scientist. Yeah.
3: I'm here with Dr. Ron Hunter who's awesome and from Tacoma. Um, So Washington person. I think one of the only Washington people I've met so far and he's going to tell us why he wanted to be a scientist. Here
2: you go. Hi I'm Dr. Ron Hunter. I'm actually in Atlanta Georgia now. Um, I wanted to be a scientist ever since I was a kid. That is so stereotypical but it's so true. I had a chemistry set growing up at five. I'm a chemist right now by trading i used to take my mom's and dad's cologne and mix it all together and create potions as i called them and so that's why they bought me the chemistry set in the first place (laughs) um and now i'm an analytical chemist working at the coca-cola company doing lc or liquid chromatography work for them in global quality um so that's one of the main reasons i turned out to be a scientist aside from loving science and math in general and always being good at it and it coming naturally
3: I think it's funny that you just said that you wanted to make potions because my six-year-old Dory says the same thing. She mixes water with milk, (laughs) and she makes a potion. So your parents, Biochemistry Set, what other support did you have to become a chemist and a Ph.D. chemist at at that? So what kind of support, like from people or from institutions?
2: Um, So the support I had was that everyone in my family is... uh a teacher and educator and so from a young age i was never told that i couldn't do anything or not to try something which is why people people now would perceive a kid like i was as a bad kid because i was so busy and so into everything but my parents and nor any of my family members ever did that they i was always a good kid who was just extra inquisitive and so they they encouraged that inquisitiveness um in me And then I went to D.C. in 2002 at the age of 20. I worked in the National Science Foundation in in the chemistry directorate. And instead of going to med school, someone suggested that I look into grad school. And I accumulated all of these wonderful mentors of whom I saw today. So a whole 13 years later um, in D.C. We're still connected. Um, They're still my support system. We've all grown together I'm um, to the point where my mentor is like, I want, a, I want a new job. Help me find a job. And I'm like, cool, that's awesome, but okay, can you still help me find a job? <laughs> so, I mean, now we're more colleagues, but they're, I still, they still serve as great mentors and sponsors um, throughout the course of life. So, family support and then definitely external support from um, great advisors. I've never had a bad boss. I've never had a bad advisor. Just been super fortunate and um, that everyone has always encouraged me to do whatever I asked um, or wanted to do.
3: So you're working at Coca-Cola now, but I know before that you were working, you are, you are working at the CDC with robots. And so I want to ask you about pop culture and the nerdy things that we both like. But before that, I want you to say something about the robots that you worked with at the CDC, and then we can talk about pop culture.
2: Uh, The robots that I worked with at the CDC are awesome. I worked with the Hamilton Starlet, which is an automation system. I called him Heisenberg because I'm a Breaking Bad fan. Um, I worked with the Staccato system um, from Perkin Elmer. Um, we called them Tyrion Lannister because I'm also a Game of Thrones fan. Um, and I always said, all, say, meshing, together. all meshing together. So um, I always said that the, they were a cross between um, if Wall E had a love child with the Coca Cola bottling machine, and that was prior to my job at Coke. And so I worked with automation and robots to do tobacco analysis in biological fluids such as serum, urine, and saliva. So it was awesome. It was an awesome job. Um, we are able to analyze over 100 samples in under an hour and a half and then put them on the instrument. Great job, great robotics, um, great experience to the point where we received a Director's Award for Innovation um, for the Robotics Research Arm Group in 2014. So that was amazing um, for the... The vision of laboratory sciences director to recognize all of the hard work we put into innovating and automating the process in the tobacco exposure biomarker group.
3: Okay, so Game of Thrones, Breaking Bad. Was there any pop culture when you were a kid or you know, college that actually did assist you in liking chemistry? Or maybe maybe did the opposite but you overcame?
2: So I actually never saw Breaking Bad until after I had finished my Ph.D. Um, so if I had, I would definitely have been more gung-ho about it. Uh, but I used to watch Doogie Hauser quite a bit. And, um, and I was pre-med initially. So MPH, Neil Patrick Harris, did play a critical role in developing my science capabilities. Um, Problem Child and Home Alone 1 and 2 also played a great role <laughs> and um, cultivating my imagination because I saw how Macaulay Culkin was able to create all these gadgets and so that's I was always an inventor I feel like I have an inventor's name um pretty boring name but Ron Hunter sounds like an inventor to me those are uh some current things and then MacGyver um that I might be telling my age there but MacGyver definitely yeah MacGyver definitely played a huge role currently Um, Breaking Bad, for sure. Um, CSI, although they do chemistry in the blink of an eye, which is crazy. NCIS, those kind of shows are awesome and influencing how I stay passionate about the sciences as far as pop culture goes.
3: If you were to meet some aspiring scientists, which we have at SACNIS a lot, I'm sure you've already done this, right? Um, what would you say to these students, and how to like motivate them? Because they, I mean, all of them ask you questions. So first of all, what's the most common question you're asked, and then what do you tell them?
2: The most common question I'm asked is, "How do you feel when you got your PhD?" Yeah. I told my friend Patty this before she started her PhD several years ago, and I said it was all right, and I said it like that. Okay. Um, and if you ask me now, I'm so ecstatic about it it's the best thing that I've ever done it's a really proud accomplishment but at the same time you need to remain humble because you really only know a microcosm of the world and it doesn't make you any brighter necessarily than anyone else you meet just because you you got these letters you just had the opportunity to get it that somebody may not have had so I say it's all right And when she came back and finished her PhD, she says, I know exactly what you meant when you said it was just all right, because there's so much work um, to be done. And six years later, I finally feel like the PTSD of getting a PhD has finally resolved itself, and I'm able to enjoy my career and help other students. And I feel like a lot of people, they're not lying when they're trying to be positive about getting a PhD, but I feel like you need to give the students a real perspective before they start this program because getting a PhD is hard. Um, you need to choose the right advisor and the right program, and even if everything lines up, it's still going to be difficult. So I give a real answer and um, I don't sugarcoat it because it's definitely not gonna be sugarcoated. The second most uh, asked question is, how did you get your job? And I just started working at Coca-Cola. Um, my my plan of attack was no plan at all. I just kept applying until someone gave me a job. I don't advise that, but um, I've never not had a job. Um, so if that plan of attack kept me employed gamefully, then I think it was a great plan of attack.
0: <laughs> well,
3: I just I just want to like. Thank you for talking to me and everything you said about the PhD. I know exactly what you mean. After I finally finished, it was I didn't it didn't feel like I was actually done. And five years out, you're six years out, and um, I am starting to get to the point where I'm really proud of myself that I did that. But it took a really long time. Thank you for joining us! Today's episode, Inclusive Science, Inspiration, and Support, was produced in the KMRE Spark Radio Studios, located in the Spark Museum on Bay Street in Bellingham. It was recorded on location in Washington, D.C. Our producers and engineers are Eric Faburetta and Nathan Miller. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet.
2: Gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I rap, you think I die, nitrate, activate. Right uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance, whistle, balance, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients. They can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.